0: Brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Izzy Sutty and today I'm going to be talking to Sarah Bakewell, a writer who specialises in writing about writers, adventurers and philosophers. Her latest book, Humanly Possible, explores 700 years of writers, thinkers, scientists and artists all trying to understand what it means to be truly human. I'm so thrilled to be able to talk to her about it today. Uh, Sarah, welcome to the Penguin podcast. Thank you very much. You're so welcome. Now, so I'm working on something at the moment. And yesterday I had this book and my colleague said, what's that? What's that? And I said, it's about humanism. He said, I haven't got a clue what that is. Explain it to me. But we had to be really quick because we were about to start work. So I said, "Uh, well, it's about valuing connections with humans over anything else, expanding your appreciation of what it is to be alive, possibly not believing in a God, but You can be a humanist and believe in God and appreciating art as much as possible. And he said, oh, I think I'm a humanist then. And I said, well, yeah, actually, I think lots of people are. Now, was that a good explanation? I'm sure I missed bits out, but I was under pressure. I thought, well, I'll just say what comes into my
1: head. I think that was a great explanation, especially under pressure. It is one of the absolutely classic things about humanism is that it's very hard to define. And everybody has their own humanism sometimes you come across people saying, well, only my version of humanism is the real one and everybody else's is is not. But it is a incredibly far reaching concept. And the version that is well known in the English speaking world today is the roughly non-religious one or the one that I would say rather it's not that it's non-religious, but that it looks for our sources of value in our connection to each other and to the physical world and to other living creatures more than looking to any kind of dogma that's laid down by a religion. But there are many other meanings of the word as well and there have been through history, meanings that had nothing really to do with that. Uh, One of the main ones was people who specialised in the humanities. They're still called humanists more in American usage than in British usage, but that as well comes from the idea of the human studies, the studia humanitatis, they were called in Latin and that became the foundation of humanities. Those are basically the studies tends to mean of art, literature, history, all kinds of studies that rest on the human world rather than either the physical world of nature or the religious world. It's distinct from theology and from the physical studies. It's the study of that cultural realm in which we live so much of our lives. When we create art, we tell jokes or we explain things to one another, we teach one another, we learn from one another. We speak our languages, we invent things. Uh, It's that whole creative and and human realm. And that is the heart of humanism. I mean, it's right there in the words. It's human. It's human studies and human things, which isn't to exclude the material or the natural world, far from it. We can't be separated from that, of course. But it is the idea of humanitas in Latin, the idea of human things being our concern as human beings especially in the realm of values and morality. But you can believe in a God and be humanist, can't you? There is um, a religious humanism. I mean, they speak of religious humanism. People feel differently about that in relation to humanism. I tend to think that the broader the definition, the broader the the welcoming quality of humanism, the better, and that it certainly shouldn't be seen as excluding any kind of belief. I mean, after all, our religious Practices and beliefs are very much a part of what it is to be human. It's a it's a part of our cultural and moral and personal world, and also our artistic world. When you look at the incredible beauty that we've created out of religious faith, so I see it as very much uh, all inclusive. Yes, it seems to go against the point of humanism to say, "Oh, you can't be
0: in our gang." Although I know it's not really like you know (laughs) we say, but. I I know what you mean. I think about when I've been to church and there were a lot of elderly people when I, my mum was a church organist and I grew up going to church every Sunday. And there were a couple of elderly people and that was the only time they left the house and there was such a sense of community and connection for them at church and afterwards. And that seems very humanist.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I love going into churches and cathedrals and temples and it absolutely fascinates me. And also that sense of community, which the church has provided And other religions are exactly the same. Mm. Has provided tremendous sense of community, which sometimes we kind of struggle to replace. But I think that that's almost putting things backwards. The important thing is community. And that comes out of our humanity in relation to each other. And the actual list of beliefs in any religion is almost likely to be secondary to that. That's how I feel about it anyway.
0: Yes, that makes sense. Mm. I think because the emphasis is on the here and now with humanism Mm. in every way. So about connections with other humans and about... A connection with I suppose the world around you and and what's there it seems that if you have a god and you're constantly thinking or thinking about the afterlife which not everyone religious does
1: but just if you're not really in the moment then that seems to clash a bit with the system of humanism. I do feel that way yes and I agree with you not all religious people certainly approach things that way. But I think at its most extreme, you get an idea of renouncing not just the pleasures, but also the involvements and the emotions and the sense of responsibility within this living now here world in order to practice for some kind of afterlife that you believe is going to come or to do things in this world that are supposed to build up a kind of credit for the afterlife. That, to me, I struggle to see how humanism can be reconciled with that because, for a humanist, I think of all kinds, it doesn't have to be here and now. It can stretch back into a sense of also our past, where we've come from, and the future that we want to work towards. Certainly a lot of the humanists of the Renaissance period were really fascinated by the remote past and tradition and trying to recreate it, bring it alive for their own world. So it's not like we're just living in an infinite present, but I think that it is the concerns of this world and the concerns of the human community that are central.
0: Yes, of course. Hmm. And, and you talk a lot about, at the beginning of the book especially, about that, I think, about how hard it was for them to continue humanism in the times when there was no printing. They had to copy out text. They had to smuggle papers. It's, a, it's so, so interesting how much it's changed over the last 700 years. And when So the guy I was talking to yesterday, he was like, well, I'm a humanist. I mean, it, it sounds quite easy. And I thought, yes, but it hasn't always been easy. Because it sounds, it sounds almost instinctive to me, humanism. But of course, they've been persecuted. People have been killed for it. Why is it, do you think, that people fear it? so much and have
1: feared it throughout history? Good question. And I would add to that, it's not just through history, but humanists are still persecuted today. It's still extremely dangerous to present yourself as a humanist in many parts of the world. What's so threatening, so dangerous about it, I think is an excellent question. And my answer to that would be that not so much that it denies anything to do with God or to do with the beyond, but that it it sort of challenges authority, which is often embodied in religious institutions, but it can also be embodied in political institutions. And humanists of all kinds have tended to refuse that authority or work against it or challenge it. And certainly any kind of totalitarian society, you see it very much in the 20th century with fascism and communism, both deeply anti-humanist in their assumptions, because what matters is the state and the nation. And they sort of almost act as religions in that there's a central dogma which can't be questioned. And, and humanists will, of all kinds, will always find themselves at odds with that.
0: It's interesting when you talk about the war, Second World War especially, I guess because that's not quite within my lifetime, but within my grandparents' lifetime and sort of imagine it more, I guess, because it's closer to now. I found it really interesting, the position of humanists during war, because suddenly I saw it as more of a passive stance than I'd previously, and it's not really, but it's interesting what humanists do in the face of war, isn't it?
1: Yeah, they had a, especially in the run-up to the Second World War, also the first, but it was particularly marked through the 30s when the threat was so apparent of the rise of fascism, particularly. A lot of them expressed feelings of being quite lost and uncertain and a lot of their assumptions had been thrown into question, Mm -hmm. mainly about what humans want, because they sort of had proceeded on a much sunnier view, often, of what humans really wanted, which was freedom and respect as individuals, the dignity of being an individual, the right to run their lives as they wished, and to have their own relationships that they chose. And then suddenly it looked like people had an incredible attraction to an authoritarian leader. And giving themselves up, giving their own personal interests up to this grander sense of there being a national destiny or whatever. So it was a big challenge to the humanist worldview. And also, of course, it was a challenge in very real terms that a lot of humanists came personally under threat and they had to decide what to do. Quite a lot of them went into exile from the Central European countries and Germany but a lot of them did they were quite active i mean a lot would have fought in the war as well when it when it broke out but a lot of, they weren't necessarily pacifists by any means but a lot of them tried to do what they could to communicate a sense of hope for the future i think that was absolutely essential to them was that there has to be a sense of hope in humanity if we don't have hope we're really lost and somehow you know it's i find it very moving to see people like bertrand russell and thomas mann who were very outspoken in in putting forward this worldview that yes, everything just seems completely lost, but there must be hope, we must have hope
0: and it seems that in those times, they often turned to text or to writing as a means of i suppose preserving that feeling that while they couldn't exist in the same way as normal, really,
1: that they wrote and they created and they still tried to connect with others who shared that view. Yes, and also one of the, uh, Thomas Mann, for example, a German novelist, he became an exile, went to live in the United States. He did this wonderful series of radio broadcasts via the BBC to Germany and the occupied countries of Europe, which was an incredible feat of organisation and technology to transmit because it wasn't enough to just transmit it on shortwave because Germans weren't allowed to have shortwave radios. So it was recorded onto a disc from Los Angeles, The disc was flown to New York and from there it was read out over a sort of telephone line to London where the BBC recorded it onto another disc, which was then broadcast just on Medium Wave, which was easier to pick up. So this was done, you know, sort of over quite a long period at at regular intervals. And again, his message in most of those was don't think that this is all there is. Not exactly this will pass, but there is a wider world out there. Hitler can't possibly win in the end because all of humanity will rise up against him you know there will be another world after this and you really saw that sense of hope of course when the war did end a lot of people put their energies into building international organizations that they hoped would make it much more difficult for such things to happen again. With this podcast, we ask
0: everyone to bring in objects. That's a very loose term because I know that you don't own some of these objects and quite (laughs) rightly so. Um, But things, I suppose, that mean a lot to them and it can be something that isn't in your house and, and even a memory, really. So the first thing that I'd love you to share with us is something that moves you.
1: I think I'm moved by all of the objects that I've brought along. Yes. I no, just stick with that, if that's I all right. I to no. think of
0: titles for all yeah, of these. No, Let's I'd say yeah.
1: something you felt in awe of, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Well, this the, this fits definitely fits both of those. It's an object which is in the British Museum. If I had tried to bring it along to the studio today, I would certainly have been arrested. For, <laughs> for, for, it would be very hard to get it out of the British Museum. It's um, a swimming reindeer figure carved from a mammoth tusk, actually just the tip end of a mammoth tusk, somewhere at least 13,000 years ago, probably a good deal more. It was found in the um, Pyrenees in 1866, actually in two pieces, and it was quite a few decades before they realised that those two pieces went together, because what they show is two reindeer that seem to be swimming. They're in a line with their antlers both sort of swept back, one behind the other. They do go together, but at first they just thought they were two separate objects. But in fact, it's a female reindeer in in front and a male reindeer behind. And it's such an object of elegance and beauty. We don't know anything about why it was carved, what its purpose was. It's pretty clear that it didn't have any practical use. So some of the other objects that have been found from that kind of era have clearly been things like spear throwers. They've had a function this just seems to be an object of beauty, maybe an object with magical or religious significance. We have absolutely no idea, no way of knowing that. I saw it in an exhibition um, at the British Museum a few years ago. It moves me because it's incredibly beautiful, because somebody made it, somebody with incredible skill made it. And it to me, it embodies that human desire to make an object of meaning and beauty out of the physical world around us. So this is the sense of humanitas, I suppose, that I am trying to get at with the book, the feeling of, as humans, we are so cultural, we are so creative as well, and so bound up with our sense of meaning. And we clearly were, or as far as we can guess about this object, it looks like something like that was already part of us that long ago and has always been. So, yes, it's, it's an object of beauty And also great meaning, and it it captures my feeling for how broad humanism can be. It really doesn't have to belong to any particular culture. It doesn't have to belong to any particular worldview. It's part of its appeal that it has no function? I think so. But then as soon as I say that, I think, well, I also think that objects that have a function are incredibly beautiful and also incredibly deeply a part of what makes us human because we are the tool-making species not the only one. We know that other species make tools as well. But we make tools of incredible sophistication, elegance and beauty and have done for a very long time. We make our world. We don't just sort of accept the world as we find it. We transform it. Obviously, this has a dark side. We're seeing now the effect of our actions on the planet. But it is fantastic. It is incredible. It's just astounding, I think, that we, we transform our environment as we do. Yes, that's a very good question because I wouldn't admire it any the less if it if it had a function, but I also quite like the idea that it didn't have a function because then we're talking about a different level of function which is to do with art and Culture, yes, exactly. It mm-hmm. does have a function.
0: Just, I suppose, not a practical one. It, it's not a tool, but it's as important. You talk about. I like the bit where you talk about um, Petrarch. He watches multicolored birds singing in their various modes, which I really loved. And you talk in the book about how what sometimes moves you is the universe thinking about the size of the universe and the complexity of the universe do you also take pleasure in those smaller things like birds and i I assume you do but um, oh yes definitely
1: (laughs) yeah like a lot of people i got very much into birds observing watching enjoying during the lockdowns not that i didn't appreciate them before that but i did much more but i do think that thing about feeling this awe in the size and beauty and puzzlingness and complexity of the universe that sometimes might be presented as somehow making us feel small or making humans feel insignificant. I mean, famously, Blaise Pascal in the 17th century said that the silence of the infinite spaces horrifies me because it makes humans feel insignificant. I have to say, for some reason, I've never felt that. The more I spend time outside on a dark night, if I can possibly manage to do it, looking at the stars or reading. I mean, I've been fascinated by the James Webb Space Telescope and the new observations that it's brought us. The more I feel a sense of humanity having a place in this, because we are the ones who are observing it, studying it and reflecting on it. This is our place in the universe, however small we are and however remote our planet is from all the others. This is what we do. I mean, that I find astonishing. And I also just find it beautiful to contemplate. There's a sense of awe, which I think is often found in religion, but I think it can just as often be found in the scientific worldview and in all the other aspects of our experience.
0: When I was reading the book, I was thinking about how I've been into, say, something like a cathedral before that I would have no clue how to design or build. And I felt disconnected from it sometimes. It's I just think, I could never do this. How did they do it? almost feel intimidated by it. But your book made me think about how if you go in and almost feel proud that you're a fellow human, think, wow, a human designed this just like me and humans built it. It might have been thousands of years ago, but that's a subtle shift.
1: But it really changes the way you connect to things, I think. It gives me a sense of connection to all those other people. Something that crops up several times in the book is the Cathedral of Chartres which I visited a few years ago, spent several days around it and exploring it, incredibly beautiful, incredibly fascinating. You really see in the cathedral how it's been built up in layers of time from its really ancient foundations to the incredible work of the 12th and 13th centuries where a lot of it was built and the oldest of the stained glass windows were made, which are stunning. And then at the top there's a kind of 19th century structure which supports the roof, and it's based on railway station design. And, I mean, all the people who have worked and still do work all the time to protect and develop and sort of keep that tradition going, I find it moving. So it's beautiful to stand in the cathedral, which is huge, and look up and think, wow, this is this is way beyond me. But the other half of that same coin for me is that sense of the connection to all the people who have ever worked on it, it's- and the sense of continuity and... And also how difficult it is to preserve these things. Because Chartres, several times, twice in particular, has come very close to being demolished. (laughs) Once after the French Revolution, when they were very keen on, they had the idea of sort of going and just smashing it up. But somebody pointed out that if they did that, the heap of rubble would block the town centre of Chartres for (laughs) untold years and would be almost impossible to clear. And then again in the Second World War, where it was almost bombarded in the belief that the Germans were using it as a lookout, The, the US army wanted to bombard it. And it was quite a heroic character who went in there and checked. There were no Germans there, so it was saved. So yes, it's throughout the book. I have a feeling of the fragility of things, but also the incredible efforts that people have made throughout to preserve and transmit Mm. human culture. Well, let's move on to your next object. And this is something that tells a story. This is even more impossible for me to bring in than the swimming reindeer would have been because not only would it be hard for me to get hold of and extremely unwieldy, but it no longer exists and there's a whole story as to what happened to it. So these are the blocks made in pear wood, the wood blocks that were used for printing Andreas Vesalius's Fabrica, it's usually called, it's the Fabric of the Human Body, which was an anatomical atlas printed in 1543. And it really was a game changer in terms of the history of anatomy and medicine. I mean, there'd been other anatomists who had produced books before, but he took a much more precise approach to dissecting and actually looking at what was there. And this is against a context of performing anatomy was banned by religious authorities, not only the Christian church, also in the Islamic world and in the ancient world. But the anatomists that sort of began from medieval times to to start to kind of do it anyway, I mean often on the bodies of executed criminals and things like that, very few of them, and not always really quite accurate in their conclusions at first. but the principle that lay behind that was that by studying what's actually in the dead body of a person, you can enormously improve the lives of the living by knowing more about medical science and more about surgery and what might be going wrong and how you can cure it. So I see it as a great humanist endeavour, The whole, not just anatomy, of course, but the whole history of medicine, which occupies a chapter in the book, because I think it's deeply humanistic. It's a science, but it's also an art. It's deeply humanistic in its desire to improve the human condition as much as possible. So um, Andreas Vesalius, who was born in the Low Countries, went to study in Padua in Italy and remained there as a lecturer. In fact, he he was taken on to start lecturing the day after he graduated, so he was a very talented student, I guess. And he created a whole series of prints of the human body, and the most famous work that came out of this was this 1543 Fabrica. There's several things that fascinate me, because part of the purpose of doing that was if you were a medical student, you attended a dissection of which there weren't very many in the course of a year because they were very limited. It would all have to be done in a bit of haste because the body was rotting on the table. (laughs) And the students would have to stand in these um, kind of lines around looking down while this the stench got worse and worse over a period of about three days while they were doing it. But by creating really accurate printed illustrations with the aid of very good artists and engravers, he enabled students to study those accurate prints in conjunction with a few experiences of attending a real dissection So it preserved it, which is what printing does so well. It preserves knowledge and passes it on. The blocks themselves, he had them carved in Venice, which is where the best engravers were, and many of the best artists as well. And then he had it published in in Basel in um, Switzerland over the Alps. The actual physical wood blocks, which were quite large, and there were about 280 of them, 279 I think, had to be transported over the Alps and it must have been done on muleback and you could only do it in a certain season of the year because others said that it wasn't covered in snow through this pass probably St. Gotthard pass to get it to his chosen publisher in Basel who produced the book and it was immediately one of the great works of printing. The publisher hung on to these blocks for many years and died and then they were sort of passed around they kind of disappeared at various times and then somebody would discover them wow look is you know 279 incredible <laughs> pairwood blocks of this these great illustrations. People bought them, sold them. Some printers decided to use them to create new editions because you can still print from them. And they ended up in University of Ingolstadt for a while and then Munich, apart from a couple that actually went back to Louvain, which is where Versalius was from. It was very unfortunate that Louvain, the library was actually destroyed twice by firebombing in first the First World War and then the Second World War. So those two were lost there. Munich was bombed in the war as well, the library, and the Pearwood blocks have gone. They vanished. So to me, it sort of represents something that was an extraordinary survival, but now isn't. And partly through the misfortune of war, of course, which is where we lose so many things. It also represents, I think, the great sense of hope that we have in medicine as a humanistic practice, anatomy as kind of victory of reason over, well, I guess, over religious prohibition, which Mm -hmm. is what mainly was holding it back. I love the bit where you talk about Salius and
0: the colleague are having a, a row over the top of the body that they're <laughs> dissecting, and you imagine them. you imagine them throwing kidneys and clavicles at <laughs> each other? There's such a playful seam running through the book, which I really love. because It brings it all to life. There are so many different people in the book, yet I really felt like I knew something about their character, which makes it so much easier to absorb their thinking as well. Do you like that element of w- where you get to imagine, you know, pairing people up together in imagined circumstances?
1: Definitely. And history, as soon as you start reading in any of these fields, these conflicts between people just throw themselves up in your face. You know, you don't have to hunt very far to find them. And quite a lot of the humanists in the book you know maybe you think of humanists i mean I have this tendency I've always sort of thought of humanists as a gentle breed, sure, yeah. you know the kind of vegetarian sandal wearing nice people would be the stereotype that was often put around in the twentieth century, but actually, a lot of the humanists in the book spend an inordinate amount of time on feuds and quarrels, and there were a few cases of of it actually coming to physical fisticuffs particularly in the Renaissance, particularly in Florence, which was, you know, a pretty high powered intellectually place. And people had some pretty big egos sometimes. But on the other hand, they often had quite a lot to be egotistical about because they were achieving a lot. And also it was a different stage, wasn't it? It was like they had to fight
0: harder almost to keep it, maybe because they were being, I don't know,
1: society was so different then. That was a period when there were tremendous changes of Political instability, tremendous changes of, you know, you might be in with one influential patron and everything was going well and then there'd be a change of regime and (laughs) you would be in trouble. But it was also, there was a culture of intellectual debate, which is a positive thing. But of course, sometimes it could get a bit overheating. (laughs) Um, Well, let's move to
0: your next object. This is something to drink, which I presume you won't ever drink because
1: I don't know. Probably not will. now. So this is a bottle of wine from the vineyard of Chateau de Michel de Montaigne in France, not far from Bordeaux. The particular bottle of wine that I have, well, I'll come back to that. This is quite a nice story about that. But just to say why I value it, Michel de Montaigne, he inherited a wine estate from his family and that was the source of his income. And it's still there today. It was in the family until fairly recently. You know, I mean, a hundred years ago. No, maybe it wasn't that long, but it's it's not quite in the family now but it it was he was very independent because of that and his claim to fame was that he um, wrote a enormous collection of essays and he really invented the genre of the essay he's very close to my heart because I wrote a book about him called how to live a life montaigne and and sort of immersed myself in reading him and trying to understand his world but he's also kind of come up again because he was very much a humanist But he was a humanist of a different kind from the ones that came before him. A lot of the people before him were sort of a bit besotted by the the classical Roman and Greek worlds and a bit tied to it and a bit over-reverent in many cases of classical culture. He came along, he was deeply versed in it and knew his Latin and literature extremely well. But he took a much more critical attitude of like, well, actually, if I'm not enjoying a book, I just throw it from me. I mean, I'm not going (laughs) to slog through it. And, you know, I don't revere, like, Cicero, which was the great figure that they all loved, I mean, adored, or not all of them, but most of them kind of worshipped Cicero as the great Latin author. And Montaigne comes along and says, well, actually, a lot of Cicero is nothing but hot air. And (laughs) So, yeah, he took this much more personal and and critical attitude to that cultural heritage that was so dominant in the Europe of its time. And he wrote these very personal essays, which are also a mass of humanistic learning. So they are full, in fact, of the Latin and Greek quotations that he's so rude about, filled with the results of his reading. He was fascinated by history and by how human beings have behaved in the past and what we can know of them from books, and fascinated also by the people that he knew around him and uh, he loved to travel and a very sort of open-minded attitude to life. He lived in very unstable and difficult times himself with wars of religion raging through France. And he's sort of retained this independence. I mean, it's that thing that a lot of humanists have done of sort of trying to maintain their humanity in difficult times, not necessarily changing anything very much, but they see themselves perhaps as keeping going aflame. His essays are very striking for having almost nothing about religion. I mean, when he does speak about religion, he was a Catholic. When he does speak about it, it's to say things like, well, of course, I just believe whatever the Catholic Church tells me to, and then he you know, just goes on to talk about other things he's clearly not very interested. He's really interested in what it is to be human, and he writes constantly about that about what we all share, how we recognize ourselves and each other, so he has this ideal of universality of of being human that we can all we all share our essential humanity, and so we can all go some distance towards understanding each other. Also, he's fascinated by diversity, the incredible diversity of cultures that were available to him at the time, and of attitudes and ideas and habits and ways of presenting ourselves. He's even fascinated by different kinds of haircuts or (laughs) how we behave. So, you know, I've always been very fond of him. So this bottle, when I visited the estate, which I was very keen to see, I bought a couple of bottles there. They still sell their wine. And I gave some away. And I kept one. And of course, I drank it because it's very good wine. And then quite a few. So that was it. I had no more bottles. And quite a few years later, a friend of mine saw in a charity shop this 1999 bottle of the wine. Wow. Selling for like a pound. And she bought it for me. So I've had it ever since. And it still sits there in my kitchen. I haven't stored it properly or anything. So I don't dare to open it, partly because I don't want to lose it. And partly because I just have the feeling that something is going to have gone wrong with that wine in that period of time. It's probably not very drinkable (laughs) because I haven't been, you know, kept it in a cellar or anything. But I just, uh, it's a, a very treasured object, partly because of the random way in which it happened to come up because and also you were bought it as a gift by someone who knew you would love yeah, it That's it's so a very much... old friend a very old and dear friend that i've known for yeah since my university days so yes yeah,
0: yeah. so that really makes hmm. it more special
1: there's a bit in the part of the book where you talk about montagna there's a bit where
0: you talk about george eliot saying that reading fiction increases empathy and that feels like it's tied in with his thinking i think i believe that reading
1: fiction increases empathy i wondered what your thoughts were on that and what his were i suppose well as far as my thoughts i mean it's there's actually been scientific studies that have tried to establish whether this is true or not and also it depends what you read you know whether reading kind of trashy fiction or or reading very high literature makes any difference and actually it's i'd kind of say it's inconclusive and certainly some people feel that either that it's not necessarily the case that it does increase empathy and how it's difficult to know how to measure empathy anyway. But there are those who say, is that even a good thing? Maybe we're better off basing our moral choices on actually thinking rationally rather than being led by emotion and sentiment. This is actually quite a long debate within the kind of humanist ethics because a lot of humanist ethics for centuries has tended to focus on what they used to call sympathy, which is basically what we now call empathy. It's fellow feeling. It's kind of like a sort of mirror. I mean, we might now think of mirror neurons that we see. If we see somebody else suffering, we feel they're suffering to some extent in some way. We feel that we share it and we don't want it to happen. We want to stop it. And this seems to be a part of the human experience for the vast majority of us. So I incline to think that it probably does, but I I would be reluctant to sort of state it as a fact because it is actually, you know, there are those who try and investigate that. I think that George Eliot knew what she was talking about because her novels have a huge cast of characters who we really enter into their feelings and experiences in this complex tapestry of life. This is the novel. This is what the novel has mostly done is to show us more than one human being feeling different things in relation to each other and in in relation to their situation. And as a reader, I think of it as kind of hitching a ride inside somebody else's head so that you feel some of what they feel through the skill of the novelist who's presenting it. There's a connection, I think, back to the Montaigne, what's been called the Montaigne-esque tradition in literature, because although he sort of does that, but there's only one character, it's himself. But that self is so Multitudinous, multifarious, and complex, and constantly changing his mind about things, and constantly writing about other people. Those others come in through his reading and his social life. So he gives us this rich tapestry of human experience. What do you read before bed? Do you tend
0: to read books about humanism, or I suppose more philosophical books? Not before bed. Yeah. No, because then I <laughs> think, oh,
1: right, I've got so to But go I've got my an idea. Now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I read all sorts. What I try and avoid doing is just scrolling through my phone before yeah. bed, I think, like all of us. Yeah, me mm. too. I'm really interested in the idea about, and we just
0: touched on it then actually, that humanism has to contain both universality and diversity. And you explain it really well, I think twice actually, touch on it briefly towards the beginning and then towards the end in more detail, that actually you need both especially in relation to disability rights, which you also write about.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's that's not a subject I'm an expert on by any means, but I've, I see it as, um, well, really something that... I mean, I drew there on a book by Dan Goodley, who's written about humanism and disability. And what he really draws attention to, I think, is how, on the one hand, a society flourishes when there's a sense of universality in the sense that we all recognise each other as having human experiences like our own, and therefore... All of us have a right to maximise our human potential, our human experience and enjoyment and pleasure in life absolutely to the maximum that's, that's achievable and that therefore a good society will, at its most basic level, make it possible for people to get into buildings if they're a wheelchair user. I mean, it's, there's a sense of we all know what it would be like. This is, touches on the empathy thing. We're all connected by our sharing the basic quality of having human experiences and feelings. And what he says, though, is that the other thing is that we mustn't lose sight of the diversity side in that a society that recognises that some human experiences are also very different from others is also likely to be a better society as well. So it's not making us all into a single model of the completely independent, self-reliant, go-getting, the kind of human being that you visualize i always visualise the vitruvian man figure which is the one that leonardo da vinci portrayed yeah, quite a with famous a famous one a isn't big it big muscular yeah. man beautifully proportioned with arms flung out and and sort of representing the human you know dimensions at their most ideal well i think humanism has very much moved away from this idea that there's one ideal that we all have to conform to in order to be fully human particularly in terms of being male and european and able bodied So, yes, it's absolutely vital that diversity of experience and perspective is also a part of how we structure society and how we interpret society so that we have perhaps a society, this is Dan Goodley's argument, that is more based on a sense of our connections to each other and how for some things we do need to rely on each other rather than all being atoms on our own completely self-reliant and independent So, the general sort of diversity and universality thing, the way I always think of it, because sometimes almost it sounds as though they're set as opposites against each other. But I think the really giveaway thing is that when recognition or respect for one goes missing in a society, the other one often goes as well. So, a society that has no respect for diversity is likely to be a society that doesn't recognize the universally human, the universal rights of all human beings, regardless of gender and race and everything else but a society that loses respect for that is also not likely to have any respect for diversity so that shows i think how the two are absolutely intertwined with each other
0: and you write near the end of the book about post-humanists and they look forward to a time when humans kind of died out really and then transhumanists who want us to accelerate towards technology I'm fascinated by those groups of people. Also, do you think with anything, there are always going to be people who kind of push outwards, push the boundaries and find places to go that are a bit more extreme?
1: Yeah, and I enjoy the, those kinds of thoughts too, because it does push the boundary. Of It also raises the question of actually, what are we? Who, what is it to be a human being? Transhumanism tends to see a kind of disembodied mind as being the future, when we've merged with some sort of non-biological technology or we've become so intertwined with it that really the sort of the pure consciousness, purely disembodied consciousness that can somehow still be human and, or transhuman maybe, but it's something that that is in some sense us, that we can look forward to perhaps travelling the universe, but without needing a body, which of course makes us mortal and limited if we have a body. I have always enjoyed reading science fiction and love the way that science fiction helps us to imagine these very remote futures, possible futures, these very different ways of looking at ourselves. But I also have found myself becoming more and more aware as I've gone on of how much is lost in that vision of what it is to be a human being, because what it is to be a human being is not to be a disembodied mind. None of us have had that experience. It's to be embodied, mortal subject to all kinds of limitations, but also connected to other people, connected to our particular time and place, and living in a very rich cultural environment as well as a rich natural environment. And I I feel a great sense of loss if those things are imagined as having been somehow jettisoned as no longer important. It
0: feels like you wouldn't necessarily
1: listen to the birds singing like Petrarch
0: if you were also thinking one day I might get to travel to Mars, the two dates seem to,
1: or you wouldn't invest wholly in that moment possibly. I think it's sort of, it does very much make me think of a religious dream of transcendence. There's this wonderful bit actually in Dante in the Paradiso, where he's starting to describe the final third part of the Commedia and he's starting to describe what paradise is like. And he sort of Basically says, well, I can't do it. Although he does go on to do it, he says we can't imagine that language itself can't do that. We can't transhumanar. He uses the word we can't transhumanize. It's a kind of verb. But I'm going to have a go anyway. It's yeah. sort of his approach. <laughs> but I find that very interesting. That it's it's part of being human to have a desire for transcendence. It seems to be something that a lot of us have. And at the same time, where's that going? I mean, you're, you're actually leaving what we do have, which is the richness of this world and of our lives. And the great, I always use the word gift, but that implies that there's a giver. And I don't think there is. I think it's just, we're just really lucky to be here. It is a tremendous gift to be alive. Well, let's move to the next object. Um, this is something to
0: listen to.
1: Yes, it's it's also a physical object, although I haven't actually seen it. So it's a wax cylinder from the early days of recording made in the sound studios of uh, thomas edison in new jersey and it's a short recording which you can still find online the wax cylinder itself is kept in a museum in america and it's robert green injusol i think it's pronounced injusol i know that partly because his enemies apparently used to call him Soul because he (laughs) injured people's souls so he was a humanist, I would I would now say, a free thinker, secularist campaigner in America in the 19th century. He began as a, well, first he was a teacher, then he was a lawyer, but he settled into becoming basically a travelling speaker and writer, very much dedicated to challenging the narrative of the Bible and of the church about what human life should be all about, encouraging people to think about life differently and promoting this sort of hugely positive vision of life as being enjoyment of the physical world, but also of our relationships, family relationships, children. He was a great campaigner for feminism and for the rights of children. He wrote about the children were routinely slapped and or worse and uh, he was a great believer you know people should take a photograph of their own face while they're in that rage with their children about to slap them and so that they can see how ugly and brutal they've become and things like that he just wrote beautifully I think about life but what he's mainly remembered for or the thing that has been most lasting of all the many things that he wrote and said is something that has become known as the happiness creed and he does say creed is kind of it's not a word that comes naturally to him because you know he's not a believer in the religious sense but his creed is um and he reads it on that recording and it goes like this while i am opposed to all orthodox creeds i have a creed myself and my creed is this happiness is the only good the time to be happy is now the place to be happy is here the way to be happy is to make others so and he goes on to say this creed is somewhat short but it's long enough for this life strong enough for this world if there's another world, when we get there, we can make another creed. But this creed certainly will do for this life. And I can't think of a better statement of the humanist worldview than than that, especially the emphasis on making others so. I mean, it's not a selfish pursuit of happiness, or rather, if you did that, you wouldn't attain it. I mean, the way to be happy is to make others so. Um, I love, there's a quote from him. He was very funny as well, wasn't he?
0: Very funny. He could have been a stand-up comic. Yes, you write very beautifully about, yeah, how he, I suppose how he was a really rich, rounded person. He was a a person who was really compelling when he spoke and this bit where he's coming out of a saloon bar and a woman says, why, Mr Ingersoll? I'm surprised to see you come out of such a place. And he replies, why, my dear madam, you wouldn't want me to stay in there all the time. I mean, I was thinking, I wish I'd written that joke. (laughs) Brilliant. And actually that clashes with, you know, what you were saying about the kind of sandal wearing, very gentle folk who you don't expect I mean that's such a sharp comment Um, Yeah, yeah he was
1: very funny and also very sort of just full of energy you know very vigorous sort of manner and um but he could also lay on the I don't know sort of flashing thunderstorms and lightning if he wanted to lay on the the grand guignon he could but he would say no he would say things like um you know and now as he sees religion receding now we can see the the ghouls withdraw, you know, their empty eye sockets that sort of withdraw from view. And so he could he could sort of have fun with rhetoric, make people laugh, make people shiver with the horror imagery, all of which is also a very humanistic tradition, that of um, the, the fascination with rhetoric, persuasive speech, vivid speech, vivid writing as well. It's a tradition that fascinated the Renaissance humanists, how to speak elegantly or powerfully and of course it comes from the classical world where there was this great um discipline of studying how you speak well in public life and how you write well and you definitely see it with him i mean he was he honed a lot of it in his life as a lawyer where he was renowned for his really rousing deliveries but also even before that as a school teacher um and he was quite very funny there too he actually lost his job as a school teacher in one place when he said um that he thought baptism was a very good thing as long as it was done with plenty of soap. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, when
0: you're funny and when you can switch it around, that can have so much more of a compelling effect. Because you've then got that light and shade within within the writing, within the talk. And actually you you have that too. You you're very funny at times, and then you know, of course, there are times that the bit in the beginning about there's um a man from Pakistan who very recently was Came here in 2017 and was refused by the Home Office. He was refused. Yes,
1: it. this is Hamza bin Walayat. He's now very active in the Humanist Humanist UK, as it now is the the British Humanist Organisation. And um, great guy. I spoke to him about his experience, and uh, he really had hinged on the fact that the Home Office had no idea what humanism was, or pretended not to know. Maybe it was just an excuse, but it it was felt that there just wasn't a good understanding of of humanism out there and when he won his case with a lot of help from humanists uk and other activists helping to put his case or reasons why you know it should be reconsidered in the wake of that there's a training in what humanism is that is now part of the home office training program for those who are going to be conducting interviews with people seeking asylum so that now the importance of recognizing that humanists are persecuted in many parts of the world and What humanism is, is is now a little bit more enshrined in in the system, fortunately. It's changed so much over the past 700 years, the idea of what
0: humanism is. There's a bit where you talk about Irving Babbitt saying that humanism is just for the elite, or perhaps not exactly saying human, but the way he acted, he was sort of saying, don't bother about the the little people. And it feels so different from that now. Do you think it will
1: continue... Well, evolve. it's very much an up and down process because that isn't that long ago. I mean, that was, you know, that was in the 20th century. And that was just one viewpoint. Not everybody a- agreed with him. But interestingly, I mean, one of the things that he said, there was this thing that became known as kind of new humanism, which was based on his views and his supporters. And it was a very elite, it was very much about going back to the classical authors, especially ancient Greek and the Athenian ideal. But particularly with the continuing the thing that was the case then, that it was only for an elite, really, because the vast majority of people for one reason or another were excluded from it. And one of the things that he said was that because there's this famous line which appears in a play by the Roman African author Terence, which is often quoted, which is basically translates as, I am human, nothing human is alien to me. And that's exactly that Montaigne thing about recognising ourselves in each other. And Babbitt said, well, The problem with that, you know, nothing human is alien to me is that it's not discriminating enough. (laughs) So it's okay. I mean, that's one approach to humanism. It's slightly left a bad image in some circles of humanism. It's sometimes thought of as being elitist, as being confined to a Eurocentric and particularly a Greek and Roman centric view of what culture is. And of being something that you have to sort of study and of being something a bit retrograde and not critical enough of other aspects of the human condition. But I think that really is a misrepresentation of what the vast majority of humanism has been about, certainly in recent centuries, where, as I say, the more open and all-embracing and welcoming humanism is, the happier I am. I mean, that's very much how I'd like to see it. But yes, I think that particular strand of humanism has given humanism a bad image, which I think is a great shame because that's completely against the spirit of what the vast majority of these humanists that I cover in the book are all about.
0: And my last question, what's the most exciting stage of writing for you?
1: It's hard to say because it's all exciting in different ways as you're going through it. I mean, the first, the kind of the first starting to getting the idea for the book and then starting to accumulate some material is I mean that's a fantastic stage because everything's all still possible humanly possible I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you just want more and more it's like oh that's a good story oh, oh that's a fascinating character and presumably I you, are, in you, and are,
0: then, you know a lot about I'm sure you know lots and lots about certain periods and perhaps
1: need to research others oh definitely yeah and there are things that I immediately thought of that would certainly be in the book and other things that just came to me later as being yes this is a part of the story as well and I want to research that and of course then there comes the bit where you have to throw out an awful lot of things that I thought were going to be in the book because it just becomes too unwieldy and they don't fit you know into this the architecture of the book but even that is fun because that's the bit where you're starting to see the shape that it's taking so I kind of enjoy all of it uh, I would say.
0: And were you talking
1: to your editor throughout or did you do a first draft and then get the notes? It was very much a A process of there would be long periods where i just got on with what i was researching because that was the nature of the thing and then other periods where i very much worked very closely with my editors both my editor here and in america both which are part of the penguin random house and it's all been so useful i mean i i love getting that expert eye of people who know what stories are are all about and how they work and it's yeah it's always been part of the process all through my writing life Thank you Sarah, thank you so much.
0: It's been a truly fascinating conversation. I'm so pleased that you could join us. Um, Thank you for listening wherever you are. If you haven't already, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. And you can leave us a review to help get the word out. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or Sarah's other work, head to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcasts. I'm Izzy Sutty. See you next time.